You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. My, 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 my music hit me so hard. Makes me say, oh my Lord, thank you for blessing me. What am I doing? Tyler Kelly, and I'm here to once again make the case for some candidates for the greatest WWE wrestler project. I'm here with my good friend, Ryan Everett. Ryan, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Uh, it's a shameful thing, lobster head, too many lines, but you know, we uh, got it going. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think we've got a really good... Uh, really good comparison this time. We've got two guys that I'm really fond of. I, I love both these guys. Um, and my two thoughts are how similar they are in both strengths and weaknesses. And my second thought is I would love to see a match between both of these guys in their primes. And I will say that I'm making the case for Greg the Hammer Valentine. Ryan, who are you making the case for? I'm making the case for the Celtic warrior himself, uh, Seamus. Very good. Uh, and we generally start off talking a little bit about where each candidate finished in 2017. Uh, Greg Valentine finished number 30 in 2017, and Seamus finished at number 53. Uh, now, I had valentine at number 23 and he will come down a little bit i currently have him setting at number 31 so i do expect him to to stay in that early 30s i had seamus at number 44 uh, and i think he'll finish at around 30 this time so uh this may very well be the second podcast in a row where i actually argue with someone i have lower than the uh <laughs> the other candidate but uh, Ryan, what uh, what are your thoughts on Seamus and Valentine? And uh, your- yeah, covered it up, and actually, I had Seamus forty four, just like you, but I had Greg Valentine at forty five last time. So, really, right next to each other. And I didn't even really realize that, you know, when we were starting to throw out different groupings. I just kind of thought of them as similar. I did not know I had them ranked right after one another. Originally. Yes. Well, and I, I guess we'll talk about you know their similarities and and their differences, but I think we will probably see that uh, that play out. For any new listeners that we have, uh, we go through ten different categories and we make the case for each wrestler, um, and we'll just uh, kind of get that started. Um, our first category is longevity. So, Ryan, do you want to talk about? Seamus longevity. Yeah, sure. So Seamus made his original like main roster debut in 2009 on ECW, the WWE ECW brand. He had been in Florida Championship Wrestling for about two and a half, three years, but 2009 was when he first got came on the scene, and then really he's been there since 2002. He's got. I, if you looked at it, there's about two separate six-month injuries, so you could take a year off of that, I guess. But 
I mean, really, 12 years just about, and it's been pretty consistent. Even when he's not a featured guy, he's still something you're going to see on Raw or SmackDown almost every week. I mean, still, even if he's not, you know, maybe not in a storyline feud, he's still someone that they'll just throw out there to him a seven-minute match that'll, that you know will be at least satisfactory. So about 12 years total for Seamus. Okay. Uh, very good. So uh, Greg Valentine debuted for the then WWF in late 1978. And he stayed into 1979 before departing for Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And he'd return again in 1981 and stay into 1982 before leaving again for Mid-Atlantic. Uh, he would again return in 1984, and this is where he would stay for his long run and stay until 1992, other than a one-day stint in Herb Abrams' UWF. Uh, he would then return again as the Blue Knight at the 1993 Survivor Series, as well as the 1994 Royal Rumble and a handful of other appearances. So. I had somewhere between 10 to 12 years of longevity with the company. Uh, he's an intercontinental champion and a tag team champion, and he is a, a WWF Hall of Famer. Um, so this is where uh, where we compare them, and I, I was thinking that Sheamus had a longer run, uh, but I wanted to, uh, to hear you make the case, and it sounds like that is, in fact, the case, that he's had a pretty solid... 12 years so yeah i would say like i mean because he's you know like valentine had those early runs but i think like you said maybe a year maybe like six eight months and then you know he'd go and you know there's times where seamus might have actually benefited from a type of situation like that which we'll get into but yeah i think seamus just because of the way he's been on the roster just wins longevity. Yeah, yeah. Valentine was kind of in and out, um, so I think that Seamus probably gets that nod. And in this particular case, I think I would lean a little more towards someone that's a, a, a little more modern because they would probably have the have a lot more volume during that time as well. Uh, yeah, definitely. And that, yeah. Now, it, it sort of depends on how many... In the 80s, I know they did a lot of house shows, but some of Valentine's stint is even before that time. So uh, so I would give Seamus the nod on this one, for sure. So, uh, And our next category, Ryan, is charisma. So tell us about the charisma of the fellow you chose. Uh, well, he's... Got, he's always had charisma. I mean, he came up and right away was, I mean, he'd spent about, it was kind of the dying days of that brand, but only about three months in the ECW before they shot him up to Raw. And, you know, at first he kind of wasn't that much of a talker. He kind of just, he kind of has always had like this natural charisma, though. like with all the big moves that he does, he's, got like a way of setting them up especially like the broke kick you know 
stamping them out, getting the crowd involved. Uh, Promo-wise, it's kind of hit or miss. I think actually right now he's kind of doing some of his better stuff promo-wise, where he's the leader of the the brawling, the bruising brutes or whatever their name is. But also, like, you know, he wasn't, I will say when he was getting to do the, uh, I mean, this kind of goes with promo skills and character work also, but, like, when he becomes world champ in 2012 and he's kind of like the smiling Irish version of John Cena, it kind of started to give the bad charisma where, like, people weren't buying it. But I think, like, the build-up to that where he had, like, the feud with Mark Henry and stuff, that was really where his charisma and matches were really get winning over the crowd, especially, like, just being this tough guy who wasn't going to back down from anyone. Yeah, I think uh, I think you'd kind of talked about his, his in-ring charisma, and I think that's, you know, something he definitely has. So, uh, and that that's kind of what I would say for Valentine as well. His charisma is all basically in-ring, in-ring charisma. He carries himself like a badass, especially 1985 and earlier. Because um, I know that a lot of people have seen a lot of his later work, and he, he kind of looks like an, you know, looks like he's a, a little past his prime, but if you watch him in that prime, he comes across like, you know, he looks pretty cool. And so even as a heel, you know, he doesn't come across, comes across as a real threat just by the way he carries himself. And that makes it even more valuable when he's selling and stooging, which he does that quite a bit more as he gets deeper into his career and he kind of slides down the card a bit. So I, I kind of feel like, and then this is where and I kind of mentioned earlier that I feel like these guys are so similar that their strengths will be their strengths and it'll be a hard call. And some things that might not necessarily be huge strengths are also a tough call. And I think this is one of those categories. Um, I, you know, I, I think I would probably go equal on this one, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll listen if you have, if you feel strongly the other way, or if you have any strong thoughts on that one. I'd agree they're pretty similar. The only thing I would say for Seamus is that, like, to push it in his direction a little bit, is that, you know, Hammerhead, like, what, the two-month run as a face, where Seamus was, for a while, like, the top face on SmackDown, and, you know, the fan involvement, I would say, like, in his match, like, loading up the broke kick and stuff it's kind of i'd say that's more charisma so i don't know that's why yeah. i would give him a slight edge not huge but yeah. yeah i can give a small take to seamus there so we'll, we'll we'll talk about the i'm not going to make any big cases on hammer's baby face run well right <laughs> it'll, it, it'll get the attention it deserves probably more attention than it deserves but uh um, our next category, though, Ryan, is star power. So um, you want to talk about Seamus' star power? Sure. So I think his – so he wins the world title, actually, about five months after he comes in. But it's not really – it's kind of one of those weird, early, like, 2000 – late 2000, early 2010s thing where 
a guy wins a world title, but he's not the main focus yet because he gets the title for three months. It's, you know, undercard match at the Rumble. I think the opening match in the Elimination Chamber, he loses it. So that's not really his biggest breakthrough, I think. I think 2012, when he wins the Royal Rumble, and then beats Daniel Bryan in 18 seconds at WrestleMania to win the world title. Yes, it's the opening match at WrestleMania, but by that point, the opening match is one of the top three or four biggest matches of the show. And, I mean, he is the the babyface main guy on SmackDown for 2012. And then from there, he slides down a little bit, but he's always like, U.S. champ, IC champ, depending on the show he's at. And he could always, it wouldn't feel weird for him to be slid up into like a monthly challenger match or especially if it was like a multi-man match for the title. And, you know, with the, the buyer for a while, they're kind of like a main event act almost as a heel tag team. They do main event, uh, the first Shield comeback match, although it ends up being Kurt Angle, but that's a whole other story. Um, yeah, I think he was always a guy that, you know, could just, you know, he might be kind of hanging out in the mid-card for a while, and then all of a sudden he gets the right story and the right opponent. He gets bumped up. He had it recently with, uh, about a year ago, before WrestleMania with, Drew McIntyre, and then just this last couple of weeks, last month and a half, he's had this feud where with Gunther where, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but just an awesome match at the uh, Clash at the Castle, and then even Extreme Rules, it was one of the featured matches, and he's still getting a big response, and, you know, he's kind of on the new new gear, new star power layer lately, I would say, with this new character and it's getting over and, you know, change in management might have helped that. He's always been a Triple H guy, I think, but I think he's always been positioned pretty well where also people now are used to him. Like, it's not a hard sell to see, like, oh, Sheamus is in a big match. It makes sense for that. And you know, Star Power go out. I think he was in uh, Ninja Turtles 2 as, I forgot if he was Bebop or Rocksteady, but, you know, give him a little bit of pop culture right? I guess. Okay, I was unaware that of the Ninja Turtles <laughs> crossover, so uh, I will absolutely take your, your word for that. Uh, being pop culture relevant is not going to be in my wheelhouse, so, um, but I I am a huge fan of his work with Gunther, so uh, so I'm looking forward to talking about that some here in a little bit. Um, as far as Valentine goes, um, I think that Hammer Star Power gets sold short a little bit, so. Um, Aaron and JT just covered him as they're counting down their list um, on uh, No Holds Barred, uh, which is, I, I think they do that once. I cover, think they have covered that subject of their list once a month here on the North South Connection. So if anyone 
is listening to this and not listening to that, I'd highly recommend it. Um, but they just wrapped up their camera discussion, I think. Pretty yeah, good. that was that was the last episode um, before this one. So, um, and and JT had Hammer pretty high, or had him about the same area that I did last time in the twenties, and and he'll come down a little bit. But uh, Aaron would kind of lump Valentine in with the Tito's and the Kofi's and the Ziggler's and just that tier of the good to great working mid Carters. Um, but, but I would argue that Valentine is a little, you know, a level above that as far as star power goes. And, uh, the reason I would say that is because I'd argue that he was Backlund's top rival during his title run. Uh, so, Valentine was arguably the top heel in the promotion for large stints of that 79-82 time period. Uh, certainly one of the top two or three heels. Sergeant Slaughter was there. Um, Kim Patera. But, you know, I think that Valentine seemed, Valentine seemed to be the top challenger, challenging most often. And granted, he did leave a few times during this time, but the business was just different then so that they, they didn't keep huge rosters full of wrestlers so that they, they did move around a lot and in particular heels because they always eventually lose to the baby face and you can only do that so many times so you have to kind of cycle out um but when valentine was in the wf during that late 70s and early 80s run you know he was always challenging for the belt and to me that makes him a main event heel and I believe that this main event time was longer than, say, your Kofi or your Dolph, where they they do, you know, may hold a, a championship, but you know it was kind of fleeting. Um, and another point, and Ryan Gray and I uh, made this point when we did the first episode of this pod, which was about Tito, uh, and we talked about how that Valentine Tito feud would often main event house shows and it would close down Madison Square Garden shows, which were the biggest thing at the time. In the days prior to WrestleMania 1, and there weren't pay-per-views, you know, those big house shows like Madison Square Garden in Boston and Philly, that's kind of how they would how they would kind of determine that star power. And many times that IC title feud between Valentine and Tito would close those shows. And during that feud, the IC belt, I would argue, was likely at least the equivalent of a, a secondary world title. Like you'd mentioned, you know, for Sheamus and, and for so many others, they might have a belt, but they might be the third or fourth or fifth star because right. Cena yeah. or Punk or whoever might not have the belt. So it it's always a challenge to kind of weigh those different eras. And I don't want to grade on a curve, but I do want to just compare to contemporaries. So that is, that would be my, my spiel on that. Um, as far as the star power goes. So Ryan, what, uh, yeah, how would you have these two? I would say they're pretty close. Cause like you said, you know, yeah, Seamus has the world title run, but it's very much in that time, the secondary title. Whereas, you know, so it's very similar, you know, him main eventing 
a pay-per-view, a SmackDown pay-per-view as the champ is very similar to, you know, Valentine and Tito main eventing a garden show in December of 84, you know, and probably more, that was probably more successful than a SmackDown only pay-per-view would have been in 2012 or 15. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's good. I'll just have a split vote for an equal sign and, and uh, we can move along to flexibility, which I think is is a good one for both of these guys. And I'll I'll let you make the case for Mr. Seamus. All right. So Seamus, you know, he's very flexible. I, you know, he had about a. I was looking it up. It was about three years that him and Cesaro as the buyer were, you know, featured a lot on TV and one of the best. Teams in the company for sure. I think they were five times total tag champs. Yeah, five times tag champs, four times on Raw, once on SmackDown, and then, I mean, King of the Ring winner 2010, Money in the Bank 2015, Royal Rumble 2012. Always, he's great in, he works really well as both like a base. And like those multi-man money bank elimination chambers for like the smaller guys to do stuff off of, but he can also, you know, he'll do a move off a ladder, bro kick through a ladder. You know, he's not afraid. He's a base, but not in like a king or big show way, where because he'll also do the big time move off, off the different apparatuses that they have and. Then, like like I said, heel, face, he can work both ways, you know, especially if he gets into that face mode that he had early in 2011 when he was turning, and he's had it recently now, this week, where he's like, he's not really a pandering baby face, but he's just this ass kicker who's not going to back down. And then as a heel, he's kind of the same thing, but just a little sneakier about it, I think, so... Good. He's a great brawler when he when it's you know available to him. He was always one of those guys that was stuck in. I mean, they were pretty. It was a lazy idea where like it seemed like on Raw for 2013 and 14 they'd always have some gimmick garbage hardcore match, but and it was usually him in it. But he made them work. I think as best as possible with the you know. The handcuff they had on at the time, but you know, put pretty much any type of match he's put in, he'll make it enjoyable and he'll make sure to put his own touch on it. Also, I think. What do you got? How flexible is the hammer? The hammer, well, uh, hammers aren't usually very flexible tools, but. <laughs> But I do think that Valentine is a very flexible worker um, and that he's quite good at both brawling and, and technical wrestling, mat wrestling, holds and counter holds. Um, he's really good at working a body part, usually the leg, setting up for his figure four leg lock. Uh, he's also a good seller. I mean, I feel like he always makes his opponent look good. And I, I particularly like his, uh, his kind of timber delayed fall where he he usually kind of has a glassy-eyed look when he executes it. It's sort of, it's like a flare flop, but without the dramatics. So, uh, 
And I also think that he's a really great tag team worker. Uh, I find the dream team to be very underrated. I think they had some of the British Bulldogs best matches and had other excellent matches against, you know, some of the other baby faces at the time that the U S express, the Islanders and the Rougeaus. And to my knowledge, no one is doing a podcast making the case for Brutus Beefcake. So I think that was far more hammer than anything else. So, and I think that the fact that the Beefcake did improve so much and became a popular character for a time afterwards is a bit of a testament to Valentine, in my opinion. So, yeah. Um, I would say, like, look at the WrestleMania 2 match. I think if it's a 15 minute match, I think Hammer's in there for about 13 minutes of it. I- yeah, and I uh, noticed so, that in, yeah, several times. More than period, so yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that it's worth mentioning the tag teams for these two individuals, uh, and they are, I'm a huge fan of both of the tag teams. I had the dream team at number 19 when we did our GWWE tag team list, um, but I had the bar at number 11, so I I mean, they are tremendous, so. I also believe that Cesaro is a better worker than Brutus Beefcake. So for for what it's worth, and if anyone wants to argue that, that's a that's a bold statement. I know, right? I'm going out on a limb <laughs> for that one. So uh, the booty man or Cesaro? So different kinds of booty man. Definitely the early champion, I'm sure. So right. Um, so I will say the one mark against Valentine in this category is that. He never had a face run of any length, and and the brief one in 91 just yeah, didn't feel right. I mean, I wouldn't say he was ever a successful or effective baby face. I'm I'm almost scratching my head as to why. It, it, it feels like you should have just left him purely as a heel, you know, let him be like Rick Rude, always a heel, or, you know, Tito and Steamboat, always baby faces. Valentine feels like he should be one of those guys, and he's technically not because he had that brief little little baby face run. So I think they were setting up for him to like a rhythm and blues breakup, but by the time he actually turned face, Tommy Tonkin left the promotion, so they were kind of screwed. Yeah, I think that's right too. And, and I would say because of that fact that. Valentine was pretty was basically a career heel, and everything else was fairly equal. You know, I would give this one to Sheamus because he he has been a babyface and a heel, and I, you know, that the tags and doing the singles and tags, and I I think he was. I mean, I would definitely say the bar was a better tag team, but I think they were both good tag team workers. I would give this one to Sheamus though. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, a lot of their singles work is, you know, like we were saying earlier, a lot of the things washed each other out, and then their tags, I would say, the bar is a little higher, but not not that much, especially if you kind of, you know, I think when you look at the mid-80s stuff, you kind of got to give it more of a bump for, you know, you kind of got to grade it on a curve just in fact of the amount of man can see from that time, but I think Seamus's face kind of again turns the time. Yeah, I I would agree with that. So 
Uh, well, we are moving right along, Ryan. So uh, our next category was peak moments. So go ahead and let us know what some of some of the top moments for Seamus are on this one. All right. So Seamus, he came in in 2009 to ECW and like kind of right away is pushed up the card. He has a uh, feud with Gold Dust right away that's pretty pretty well done. It's kind of a back and forth right away. A couple of matches and, and the big no DQ match that I watched a couple days ago that still definitely holds up. And then from there he goes to he's moved to Raw and the first thing he does is I think it's his first match he faces uh, Jamie Noble and they basically have him retire him right away just to kind of set him up as a big a force to be reckoned with. And then uh, at Survivor Series 2009, him, The Miz, and Drew McIntyre are the survivors in a match. And it's kind of like, it's, it's pretty cool because it was like all three of these hot new young heels that were moving up the card quick. And then from there, he won a battle royal the next night to face John Cena and beats John Cena in a tables match at TLC 2009 to become champ. And then he, like I said, this title about this title reign isn't like, you know, it's not uh, Hulk Hogan 1984. I think this lasts about three months. He loses it at Elimination Chamber to, well, in a, Elimination Chamber match to, uh, that would have been Cena with this one. And then Batista wins about right after that. But then he has a WrestleMania match against Triple H, which it wasn't like that big of a match, but still having a match with Triple H at WrestleMania is pretty important, especially, you know, past WrestleMania. You know, 16, 17, he became a main guy. Uh, from there, he wins the title again in a Fatal 4-Way at the aptly named Fatal 4-Way pay-per-view. Uh, again, though, this is still kind of, he's kind of in the background to uh, the Nexus and loses the belt in another multi-man match against Randy Orton. And then in November, he wins uh, King of the Ring on a special Raw pay-per-view, and then, or a special Raw where they had the tournament in one night on Raw. And then from there, he's even the U.S. title eventually. Uh, kind of back and forth, nothing too big. And then he wins the, oh, in 2011, he has a feud with, you know, Mark Henry's just killing everyone on SmackDown, and Seamus stands up to him and says he'll fight him, and that turns him face. And he's got some great Haas fights with Mark Henry, and from there, his he starts building up like the face momentum and starts going through all the big heels on SmackDown, eventually winning the 2012 Royal Rumble, and he challenges Daniel Bryan. And wins in 18 seconds. And then he has a match with Daniel Ryan again at Extreme Rules, where they're kind of able to do the match 
they wouldn't have been able to do in a stacked WrestleMania card here. They have about 20 minutes of a two out of three falls match, which is just great. And after that, he is a champ and he's defending it. A lot of uh, Dolph Ziggler and Alberto Del Rio feuds. Um, and then he loses that to the big show and they have a couple of matches back and forth. Um, and then he feuds, kind of in a feud with the Shield. He's one of the guys that's always in the the big six-man tags against them. He fights them at WrestleMania. Um, again, 2013, he's kind of floating around. 2014, oh, 2013, he uh, goes out for a little while to Twin Labrum. So then he comes back in the 2014 Royal Rumble, and again, he's kind of just positioned there as an upper mid-carder, and then he gets injured again. He wins the U.S. title from Dean Ambrose, and then he eventually gets hurt in November, and again, is out for some time. And then he comes back the night after WrestleMania 31, and this is when he did use his mohawk look which apparently was just for the fans' chant, you look stupid. Uh, then he formed the League of Nations, which was one of the uh, not one of the least intimidating factions, I think, ever, just the way they played out. And he does win Money in the Bank in June of 2015. And then at Survivor Series, he comes out after Roman Reigns wins the title and Venus comes out and wins the world title by challenging for the money in the bank using his money in the bank time character and then he loses it back to Roman Reigns uh, the night after a TLC uh, a match at TLC against Refrain and then he the League of Nations gets in a feud with uh, the New Day, which turns the New Day face. So that's kind of no, notable. And uh, they have a match at WrestleMania, which the League of Nations actually win. But afterwards, Mick Foley, John Michaels, and Stone Cold come out and attack them. So I guess that's kind of a, you know, it's a big moment, even if it's just getting attacked by the legends. It tells you that they have some sort of. Uh, Faith in you. Uh, and from there, and during the draft in 2016, he goes to Raw, and him and Cesaro start a feud. It's a best of seven match. It ends in a no contest, and the whole thing was that the winner was going to get a guaranteed title shot. So they, so McFoley decides to give them a tag team title shot since they are so evenly matched. And from there, they eventually challenged for the tag titles and beat the New Day, ending a... This was the New Day's huge uh, 400-something day run. So they're the team that's able to beat them for that. And then he's in the tag team for a while. They have quite a few big-time matches. Uh, WrestleMania 33... 
Yeah, with the Hardy Boys, uh, Gallows and Anderson, and uh, who's the and the WrestleMania 33 uh, later there. Oh, uh, Enzo and Jack And then they have a few with the Hardy Boys for the next couple of shows. Uh, the bars is kind of one of those upper mid-card tag, tag uh, teams. They have, like I said, it's supposed to be the big return of the Shield at TLC, and it ends up being uh, Kurt Angle instead, which is it was a different match than people were expecting, I think. And then from there, they win the, the bar wins the tag titles again at the Royal Rumble. And uh, at WrestleMania, they lose to Braun Strowman and that girl, child, which is always an interesting way to go with them. Uh, they move to SmackDown, and they win the tag belts there, thanks to... Uh, the Big Show, for some reason, who just shows up for like three weeks and is their manager's friendly uh, giant, and then they get rid of him pretty quickly. And then from there, the bar kind of floats around for a while. Sheamus leaves again for an injury in 2019. When he comes back, he uh, starts a feud with Jeff Hardy and this is during the actually this was even before the Thunderdome. This is just the Performance Center era, which the less said the better, but eventually he gets to the point in 2021 at the end of 2020 beginning of 2021, he gets in a storyline with Drew McIntyre kind of talking about how they came up together and how you know, he should, he didn't like how Drew McIntyre was overshadowing him, and they have a, a few that gets going. They have a really good match at Fastlane 2021, and then he actually gets in a feud with Riddle, and they have a, he fights for the U.S. title at WrestleMania and wins, and then in 2021, the end of 2021, he starts hanging out with uh, his good friend Ridge Holland and then um, introduces Butch because he can't be called Pete Dunn. And they face the New Day at WrestleMania and then he has a really good match with Drew McIntyre again right before SummerSlam and then at Clash at the Castle just recently he had a what I would call the best match of the year so far in the WWE against Gunther. And, and Gunther then just also had uh, the bruising, the brawling brutes and Imperium at Extreme Rules. So kind of a late resurgence here for him. Yeah, I love that match. I, I refer to it as WrestleMania at Castlevania, but uh, <laughs> I'm told that that's not the official name, so... Um, but yeah, that, that match is a banger and I, 
I'd have to look to see if I had anything higher, but I, I don't believe there's anything, any WWE match I would have higher than that one. So I would tend to agree with you. Okay, and for peak moments for Greg Valentine, um, the first thing of note that he did in the WWF, or probably the WWF at the time, is he broke Chief J. Strongbow's leg, which was kind of part of his gimmick at the time. He was a technical wrestler, but he did tend to break his opponent's legs. Um, he then faced world champion Bob Backlund in February 1979 in an hour-long draw Broadway in what's considered one of the best WWF matches of the 1970s. So um, it was the best match that I could think of that I'd seen, the best WWF match from the 1970s that I'd seen. Um, and I I sent a note to Chad Campbell, who uh, I think he's our official Meltzer ratings guy. Um, not actual Meltzer ratings. I, I mean, I would refer to uh, Chad's opinion before someone like Meltzer. And he, his opinion was, yeah. So, yeah, I think Chad has more street cred in these parts anyway. Um, and his opinion was that that was the best 1970s WWF match that, that he had seen and by a fair margin. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I kind of wanted to really highlight that because I think if you're talking about a match of the decade contender, understanding that it may not be as good a match as some others that would, you know, make the all-time list, that's still, you know, if it's a match of the decade, comparing it to your peers, that's, that's pretty high praise. Um, he also faced Bruno, Bruno San Martino in 1979. And at this time, Vince was already billing him as the living legend. Faced Bruno at uh, Madison Square Garden. So that was a big deal in the, the 70s, in late 70s. Um, and then uh, Valentine won the Intercontinental title from Tito Santana. And they just had an epic feud uh, throughout 1984 and most of 1985. Uh, what many people do still consider one of the better feuds in company history. Uh, I talked a lot about that feud in the episode with where we covered Tito, episode one of the Making the Case podcast, um, but I'll talk a little bit more about it as well. Um, in July of 1984, Valentine challenged Hulk Hogan for the WWF title and was unsuccessful. Obviously, he would again challenge Hogan in 1985. Uh, again, unsuccessful. I think everyone listening probably knows that uh, Hammer was never the WWF champion, particularly the, would not have defeated Hulk Hogan for such title at that time. Uh, but he did uh, feud with the Junkyard Dog while Tito was injured as a part of their ongoing feud. And he, he being Valentine, defended the Intercontinental title at the first WrestleMania against JYD. Uh, so that's significant. Uh, it is a bit of a disappointment as Valentine and Tito likely would have stolen the show at WrestleMania 1 if they'd had another match in their series. Um, and and Tito was healthy by that point because he faced the executioner in the opening match of the first WrestleMania. So, uh, you know, if I could rebook history, I would have them 
have an IC title match there. Uh, and just, uh, I think that might change how we, we feel about some of those early WrestleManias and, and both performers. So, um, Hammer eventually did resume his feud with Tito and, uh, he eventually lost the title in kind of a famous, but it's, it's a little bit of a disappointment to me at a cage match in July, 1985 in Baltimore. And, Valentine would then just throw a fit and destroys the Intercontinental title in the cage. And that's that allows them to uh, debut a new Intercontinental title, more modern. So debuting the new, new look belt. Uh, he would then go on to form the Dream Team with Brutus Beefcake. And they would win the WWF Tag Team titles from the U.S. Express on August 24th, 1985 in Philadelphia, when Beefcake rubbed Luscious Johnny V's lit cigar in Wyndham's eyes. That was Valentine's manager at the time, one of one of several that he would have throughout the years. Um, and the Dream Team defended the WWF tag titles at WrestleMania II against the British Bulldogs. Um, and I, I would say that is one of the first really good matches of the WrestleMania era. Um, the main event of ones is fine with all the Gaga. Um, and then the, the other tag match on WrestleMania two is pretty good as well. But I, I think this one kind of does stand out. Um, and they would of course lose the tag tag titles to the British Bulldogs in what Gorilla Monsoon dubbed the nightmare of the Rosemont horizon. And I believe he just referenced it as such from the grave just now during this podcast because he he held on to that line for a while yeah every time I drove right to here i hear that that saying yeah yeah okay um at wrestlemania 3 uh the dream team faced the rougeau brothers and uh they were involved in a memorable angle that allowed Beefcake to turn babyface at the show. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next category as well. Um, Valentine was in the WWF title tournament at WrestleMania four, defeating Ricky Steamboat in the first round and lost to Randy Savage in the quarterfinals. And then he also had a really good feud with Ronnie Garvin that culminated in their submissions match at the 1990 Royal Rumble. So that was kind of a late career renaissance uh, for Hammer. That's kind of what I've got for the uh, for the peak moments for Valentine. So, so Ryan, uh, what, what do you think on between these wrestlers on their peak moments? Um... Kind of like the Valentine's one's biggest moments might be bigger, but I think Seamus has more. So it's kind of like a quantity versus quality thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is a fair point. So I did have Valentine for this one. And I think that that is, I think the point you just made about the quantity and the quality is a statement about the eras that they right. that they were in and that you know the 
there's significance in a lot of the things that Valentine did being defending the IC title at the first WrestleMania, the, you know, the tag team titles at the second, but part of that is because there can only be one first. So I get that. I, I do. Um, so I'll, I'll just make this one another equal sign one to one. Um, and I did just want to kind of highlight for any listeners that might not be as familiar with that era, that, that late seventies to early eighties, I think that Valentine may be more significant and may have had some of those important moments during that time that people should check out if they're not aware of that. Uh, to me, wrestling Bruno, Backlund, and Hogan is significant. And Bruno was not for the title. That would have been right. to, to wrestle, challenge all three for the title would have been quite significant and required quite a lot of longevity as well. But all right um move along to uh to storylines which may or may not be related to some of the the peak moments but why don't you get us started on some of Seamus's storylines yeah so like you said I kind of covered this in the peak moments so I'll just give a quick overview so he started in ECW was moved pretty quickly up to Raw and he's He's kind of just like this big bully when he first shows up. Just a guy who's, you know, kicking people's heads and basically his start. And then he won, wins a Battle Royal to get a title shot at John Cena. It's a table match, so he kind of puts him through it. Kind of fluky, so it's, but it's, it's a cleanish win for a title, for a table match. Um, he had that title for a while and then he loses it at the Elimination Chamber and he's eliminated by Triple H so he fights Triple H at Wrestlemania, loses but then in Extreme Rules he uh, beats him in a street fight and actually puts uh, Triple H out for a month uh, comes back in like February so that's about 10 months so he's Making noise when he first comes up, and then his character kind of stays this thing for a while, wins another title, wins the fatal forward, and loses that for Andy Martin. Becomes King Sheamus, where this is like the first time he actually has a um, character change while he's there. And I always liked the King Sheamus look. It was like a very uh, Celtic look with like the ant, like antlers and stuff as part of the crown uh so he's the king famous for a while and he, he he has a match with daniel bryan that is on the pre-show of wrestlemania 27 and then uh he's in the money in the bank match and then right after that mark henry is saying that no one could face him no one's man enough to stand up to him so famous comes out and answers the challenge and that basically turns him face for the next couple of years of his career. And like I said, he has the fight, the feud with Henry. And then from there, he just kind of starts going with uh, 
Christian and Alberto Del Rio he feuds with a little bit more. And then at the Royal Rumble in 2002, he wins it by a slim name, Jericho. And then uh, feuds with Daniel Bryan going into WrestleMania. And then afterwards, he's still feuding with him. They have the match at Extreme Rules. And from there, he gets into a feud with mainly Alberto Del Rio. They kind of feud off and on quite a bit over the summer. Uh, he places Del Rio at uh, SummerSlam, and he loses the world title to the Big Show, and they have a couple of back-and-forth matches, which are actually really good for late 2012 Big Show. I think some of those matches are really good, hard-hitting matches. Um, and, yeah, from... For a while, his character is just kind of like the smiling, happy baby face, kind of, you know, number two or three on the death chart behind uh, Cena. Then, you know, Orton's still kind of in that same tier, I would say. Uh, gets another U.S. title reign, this time by beating Daniel Brown, or Dean Ambrose in a battle royal. And then, like I said, he gets injured by Rusev and goes out for a couple of months. And when he comes back, he has a new look, which is the mohawk and the, beard, the braided beard. And from there, he eventually starts the League of Nations with Del Rio, Rusev, and Barrett. And he catches in his money in the bank, beats Roman Reigns, has a feud with him for a month. And is kind of set up as Vince McMahon's lackey during this. Uh, and then the New Day starts a few with League of Nations. And from there, after a while, the League of Nations just kind of falls apart. Uh, then the bar forms through a, it's a three, it's a best of seven series with Cesaro that ends in a draw. So they decided to be a don't make fully make them a tag team and you know first they're doing the uneasy partners thing but through their respect for each other they decided to actually start teaming and do well beat the new day for the tag titles and they are a team for pretty much the next three years uh they start as faces but turn heel pretty quickly i would say by wrestlemania and their feud with the Hardys right after that they kind of turn heel and you know there's a heel tag upper heel tag team for a while um that's kind of the main storyline though just they come they pop up when they're needed uh then he gets injured and when he comes back it is the uh performance center error and he it's in a the bad storyline with Jeff Hardy where he accuses him of being drunk and he gets him arrested for drunk drive for hitting Elias with his car and eventually this leads to a match where they have a some sort of barroom fight 
a, a bar fight, yeah, it would end their feud. And then eventually in November, they begin a storyline with him and Drew McIntyre, where Seamus is kind of jealous of McIntyre and doesn't like how he's just referred to as Drew McIntyre's friend. And would be the guy who brought Drew McIntyre back into the WWE. And eventually they feud uh, once Drew loses the belt. They feud at Fastlane. They have a match at Fastlane. And they have... That kind of ends the feud. And then he... Uh, gets into a fight with Riddle backstage. And that starts a U.S. title feud. That he wins at WrestleMania. And then he's the U.S. champ for a while. And in 2000... At the end of 2021, he's drafted back to SmackDown. And he starts teaming with Ridge Holland, and him and Ridge Holland bring in Butch, and they're part of, they become the Brawling Brutes. They feud with the New Day to start, and Jameis kind of once again gets into his feud with Drew McIntyre, and then the Brawling Brutes, he, or he actually wins a match to get a shot at Gunther, and a uh, clash at the castle and then loses, but kind of you know looks valiant in defeat, so that really turns him face again. And he's a face right now. The brawling brutes are faces and doing their thing. How could someone with a newsboy named Butch not be a face? <laughs> I mean, it's like a Little Rascals theme, I think. So it's very timely. Yeah. But I like all those guys, and uh, in particular, Seamus and the work he's done lately. So, so understandable. So I like how at least now they. There was a time, there was a little while where he wrestled in that whole outfit, but now he just wears it to the ring and wrestles in his normal tights, which is a good look for him. Yeah, I think that's. That's progress. We'll take that. So. All right. So the the storylines of Greg Valentine. The first one being that he broke Chief J Strongbow's leg in 1979, and that led to them wrestling in a series of matches after the fact after Strongbow recovered. Um, that included an Indian Strap match at Madison Square Garden. These are not my terms if you would we want to make need to make it politically correct for 2022 we could call it a native american or indigenous people strap match however you like to edit that uh, but that's how it was listed on cage match um sadly strongbow is one of the worst wrestlers i've seen so despite it being a really hot feud the matches are mediocre at best uh and I watched a couple of them, and I thought, well, if he can get a good match out of Jay Strongbow, I'm definitely <laughs> giving all the gold stars there. But like I said, it was okay. Uh, some of the better Strongbow matches I've seen, but that's damning with faint praise. Um, I talked a little bit about this, this uh, storyline when I did the last episode of this podcast with Ryan Gray, um, when we compared Bob Backlund and Roman Reigns. Uh, 
On October 19, 1981, Valentine was handed the WWF championship by a dipshit ref after Backlund clearly pinned Hammer. The, the ref was groggy and confused, and he was kind of looking down at the mat anyway. So he mistakenly handed Valentine the title, causing it to be, and I'm using air quotes here, held up until Backlund defeated Valentine in November at the next house show at MSG. So, And this BS was never acknowledged by WWF outside of New York. Uh, but I've gotten to talk about it in consecutive months, so we got that going for us. So, um, Valentine would also feud with Pedro Morales over the Intercontinental title and injured him by suplexing him on the concrete floor. When Valentine returned in 1984, he would quickly feud with Tito Santana, winning the IC title from Santana on September 24th, 1984. And Valentine would put Tito in the figure four leg lock after the match, further injuring his leg and <laughs> causing him to cry out, well, Lord, Lord, to Lord Alfred Hayes afterwards. Now, it sort of making him leading some to be confused whether he was talking to Lord Alfred Hayes or praying to Jesus. It's, you know, your interpretation is up to a debate. Uh, but while Tito was injured, Valentine feuded with a junkyard dog, including at WrestleMania 1. Uh, he would then resume the Tito feud, eventually losing the IC title back to Tito. And uh, about this time, Valentine would form the dream team with Brutus Beefcake. In fact, uh, one of their first matches before they were even named the dream team was against uh, Tito Santana and uh, Ricky Steamboat. And I will give the date on that later. That is an absolutely tremendous tag team match. Uh, it's kind of a, a bit of a hidden gem, and it's a little bit um, – not, not much came of it because uh, Tito and Santana – or, I mean, Tito and Steamboat did not tag regularly, unfortunately, because that would have been glorious as well. But it's a really good match, so – uh, the Dream Team was managed by Luscious Johnny V and then Jimmy Hart, uh, which joined the Grand Wizard and Captain Lou Albano as Valentine's managers. So he had at least four different managers. Um, as the champs, the Dream Team faced the baby faces of all the baby faces of the day. A lot of good matches, including the Islanders, the Ruchos, and most notably the, the British Bulldogs, who they faced numerous times they just faced each other around the house show loop all over the place and uh then heading you know as turned into 1987 valentine and beefcake began having friction uh, with adrian adonis who was affiliated with the team through johnny v accidentally cut beefcake's hair prior to wrestlemania 3 and and then the dream team defeated the Rougeos with Interference from Dino Bravo uh, and Valentine, Luscious Johnny, and Dino Bravo left together without Beefcake. They just kind of left him in the ring, and that was when they had the the carts going to and from the ring. Um, and Beefcake would then later return in the Roddy Piper and Adrian Adonis match, um, thus turning face and breaking up the Dream Team. And because that was a you know you get to cut. 
hair, he became the barber. Um, sadly, uh, while they, while Beefcake and Valentine would have some matches as a result of that split, sadly they replaced Beefcake. Who's, you know, as we mentioned, he's hardly an in-ring maestro himself, but they replaced him with Dino Bravo <laughs> in the new and diminished Dream Team. So later in 1988, Valentine uh, started a feud with Don Morocco when he attacked Morocco's manager, superstar Billy Graham. Uh, it's putting him in the figure four leg lock on Graham, who had a plastic hip at the time. So that was a good heel move there, I guess. Um, and that started the feud with the babyface Morocco, which ended abruptly when Morocco was fired. In April 1989, Valentine began feuding with Ronnie Garvin, whom he defeated two weeks after WrestleMania V in a retirement match. Uh, Garvin then became a referee, and Jimmy Hart and Valentine got him fired uh, for showing favoritism, and then he, he hit Valentine as well. Um, but getting him fired as a referee allowed Garvin to become the guest ring announcer at SummerSlam 89, so... Uh, he ridicules Valentine during his introduction. Uh, and then after the match, Garvin announces that Hercules is the winner because Valentine cheated to win. So, which, whoever heard of such a thing in pro wrestling? I don't know. It's unthinkable. Um, so eventually, he Garvin had goaded them enough that, that Hart and Valentine got Garvin reinstated. And during their feud, one of the things that they kind of had going on was that Valentine had a shin guard that he called the Heartbreaker. So that increased pressure on the figure four. And it was, I think, originally he was claiming to have, have some injury, but it was kind of like the on-heart cast. I think he just kind of kept it for a long time. Um, and Garvin countered with his own shin guard called the Hammer Jammer. So, and that's, you know, you see that play out in there. Their submission match at the 1990 Royal Rumble where Garvin's making faces as he's in the figure four when he's got his shin guard on. And then Hammer takes it off and then he really sells it. So it was it was a little bit of a, a somewhat unique thing that they had going on um, to make it more than just a regular series of matches. Um, following the, the mat or the feud with Garvin, though. Uh, Valentine began teaming with the Hunky Tonk Man, uh, or as Santino Morella would say, the Hunky Donkey Man. As and so they were known as Rhythm and Blues, of course. Um, Valentine fought it for a long time, but he eventually did dye his hair black as part of the the team. Uh, and this was probably the low point in his WWF career. Uh, and then in 1991, following the Honky Tonk Man leaving, uh, Valentine turned face after being accidentally hit with Jimmy Hart's guitar and megaphone a couple times. Uh, but Hammer would leave the WWF shortly thereafter. Although that was a very short-lived um, absence, uh, he returned after uh, appearing in only one TV taping for Herb Abrams UWF. So he made it back in time to participate in the 1991 Royal Rumble, lasting 44 minutes. And uh, he would continue turning face. And he lost 
to Earthquake at WrestleMania 7 and at SummerSlam. Uh, he was defeated by IRS. SummerSlam 91 lost to IRS. So, uh, he would participate in the 1992 Royal Rumble, attacking old rival Ric Flair, like everyone else in the 1992 Royal Rumble. And uh, you and I discussed that in a, a previous episode where you made the case for the Nature Boy. Um, Valentine would again return at the 1993 Survivor Series as the Blue Knight against the Hart Foundation. And he would also appear in the 1994 Royal Rumble and a handful of times in the summer of 1994. So I don't think that anyone would probably brag about his work as the Blue Knight against the Hart family in that Royal Rumble or in that uh, Survivor Series match. So. so, Ryan, I I feel like we might be in a similar situation with storylines as we were with peak moments on this one between the two. Yeah, yeah I think they're both. It's kind of like if we get peak moments the same, watch it play. Yeah. Okay. I would I would mark them down as equal, and this is this is playing out about like I expected because I feel like they're it's hard for anyone to get a very decisive win because in in a lot of previous episodes I felt like we've had really interesting comparisons and people that were that I might have close on my list, but they kind of would get there in different ways in some cases. So. Uh, their strengths and weaknesses might be different, but I just feel like these two are, are really aligned in that way. So we'll see if that holds true in the next categories. And, uh, and the next one is promo skills. So. Yeah. So for Seamus promo skills, it's, he's got a couple different variations of them, but, like, he's got the baby face where it's kind of like just, I'm going to fight him and I'm going to go down swinging. But then he's also got, like, the goofy, corny jokes making. Like, I, I call them Irish Cena. I, I particularly remember one where he's feeding with Alberto Del Rio. And I think he drives around in his car all night eating Mexican food and then has, like, diarrhea or something ridiculous. This was like in 2012. And then, uh, trying to think of like what his. So then, yeah, kind of his first four years as a. Well, after he becomes a face in 2011 through 2015, it's kind of the same. Like, kind of the. It was better. He's better, definitely better in short, like three-minute interviews or backstage promos as opposed to, all right, it's the opening of SmackDown, go out and talk for 10 minutes. I think he's better with a short, here's a couple points I need to get across. Here's what it is. And, you know, I think you still see that now where even as much as I don't really like the, you know, the parade promo where, leading up to like money in the bank or something where all six guys come out and talk and end up on a ladder. He, at least he's able to do those without sounding like cringeworthy where he's able to come out and 
say his piece for the match and then just wait until they all start fighting at the end. So I'd say he's an okay promo. It, I think it was sometimes where he was asked to go out of his comfort zone is where it kind of suffered. I don't think it was really, really much of his own fault, just kind of a fault of playing to his weaknesses, not his strengths. Yeah, I feel like a lot of his career has been at a time where the company has just asked people to do that, to play to their weaknesses. Uh, So as as far as promo skills for Valentine, uh, he always had a manager to help him talk. I I rattled him off. He'd had, you know, at least four different ones. Um, But he would cut some promos, or, or a lot of times they would do kind of a dual promo. Jimmy Hart would talk and then Valentine would talk and whatever. Um, a lot of the, you know, short backstage ones that were undoubtedly edited that, you know, I'm sure they were rarely, if ever, actually cut backstage at the show that they were showing them at. Um, of the ones that I've, that I watched, he wasn't ever awful, but he wasn't what I would call a very dynamic promo. I wouldn't, say that he ever said anything profound or or haunting or really memorable that i heard so he's not he's not doing jake the snake promos and he's not doing the rock charismatic promos or hogan uh so you know i'd say he's maybe a c or c minus promo and i'd say that's not what's going to get him on your list um i'd say that promos probably aren't what's going to put sheamus on your list either um right i i would Probably give Sheamus a small check mark there. Um, yeah, I would say because he was he is able to at least get the point across. Whereas, you know, and for uh, Greg Valentine, Don, one you've you've seen the Tuesday night, the TNT one where he gets the the rub down from supposedly his wife at the time. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think I think that's some of the hammer's best promo promo work. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure he was working hard on that one. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> so um, yeah. In uh, uh, one thing that it's usually about this time that I I realize that I should probably point out that kind of our our guiding light for the project uh, when we vote on. The project ultimately is the NJPW system, which stands for nuances, jump up moments, promo work, and then work rate. And uh, we talked about 10 different categories um, that kind of make up those four categories, the NJPW that I just mentioned. And uh, the P for promo work actually is promo work and character work and that kind of does help people that are you know maybe they're not native english speakers or they just aren't big promo guys but they compensate in other ways and and character work is also part of that and that's actually our next category that we talk about on this podcast so if you want to kick us off with seamus's character work yeah i think i mean his character work at comes across a lot in his in-ring style where he's, you know, a brawler, a bruiser. He's got the, you know, where he gets the guy in the ropes and hits him at least 10 times. 
it's kind of, you know, just seeing like a match where he hits all his big moves gives you a pretty good idea of what his character is. You know, it's not, he doesn't have like a big backstory or anything, you know, he's not, not an occupational wrestler, you know, it's not, he's a plumber and he does this on the side or, you know, it's a good thing. Maybe he didn't talk to Vince McMahon too early when he came up and he would have been like in the chimney sweeper outfit right away rather than get waiting 12 years to put him in that. But, you know, so his character has always kind of been just this guy who's going to fight you, you know, one way or the other. He's not going to back down. You know, that's kind of even when the, the bar formed, that was kind of them together. Like, you know, these two guys who at first they don't like each other, but then they kind of learn to respect each other through just how hard they fought. And, you know, then they become a tag team. That's how they're going to fight as a tag team. You know, it's kind of, his character's not that deep, but it's, it works, I would say. And it's a good enough, it's good that he's, it's not too nuanced, but it's enough that it makes him stand out. And, you know, his, his look, goes with his character you know especially when he had the mohawk but even without that just the the pale body with the bright orange hair is always going to stand out and give him a unique look yeah i i think that seamus's character work adds to like i I think combining that with the promos i I think his character work does add a lot to that and you kind of mentioned it's not super complex but i think it's one thing i like is i feel like he's consistent whether he's a baby face or a heel he doesn't become a complete chicken shit cowardly heel he's still right he's kind of just more when he's a heel it's just he's still pretty much the same guy just like a little more devious like he'll you know get a low blow or keep behind the referees but yeah he's not like always begging off or right I, I like the, uh, the, you know, the I'll fight you and, you know, the, I think he's, he really excels at challenging a larger opponent, which is, you know, kind of yeah. hard. He's a big guy. He's a big, strong guy. Um, but, you know, that you kind of mentioned the big show feud and I just love that match that I'm sure you'll talk about here in, in a little bit. Um, but that and the, the Mark Henry and just the way you can step up to those uh, those types of wrestlers and that also works if he's facing someone his size or smaller he can kind of play the bully to them so um he's kind of uh like his his fellow irishman finley and he just he just loves to fight and i think that yeah. works for him so um for valentine uh he was given the character of a technically proficient wrestler that would break his opponent's leg um, and, and he was a good, tough guy and a good wrestler. That's pretty much the extent of his character. Any other character work was likely either defined by his manager or his tag team partner. So, I mean, I guess, you know, when he's... For his neatest thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, when he's teaming with uh, the Honky Tonk Man, yeah, he is obviously an Elvis impersonator. So, uh, 
but I, I really don't think, I think that's kind of a, an area where hammers doesn't excel all that much. So yeah, he didn't have a, didn't have a lot of flash to him, particularly in that eighties time period. So, so this is one where I would tend to think Seamus would, would take this one. Yeah, I think, and, you know, like it's not that, you know, outlandish of a character, but it's, it's more of a, it, it's evolved a little bit more than, the hammer did throughout his his stand, I would say. His stay. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. So. Moving on, our next. Uh, so we've talked about a couple categories where uh, maybe, maybe the guys we're talking about weren't the greatest. Maybe it wasn't their greatest strength. But I think that's all about change because our next category is work rate. So, Ryan, why don't you tell us about some of Seamus's in-ring skills? All right. So, in-ring, like I kind of said, it, I mean, kind of relating to his character, he's just a bruising, a bruising brute, if you will. But, I mean, it actually, it fit, like, he's just, he came up through FCW. So, he does have that, like, kind of base on him, but he's also... I think he wrestled in Europe for about three years before that, so he's also got growing off of that. So it's not the it's not the very cookie cutter late two thousand grade of wrestler set move set that he came up. He's got different moves. He's hard hitting. No matter who he's fighting, it's gonna there's gonna be some loud smacks, and I mean it also helps that, like I said, his chest is. Just his whole body is so white that anytime he's in there with someone who's going to chop you or give you big open hand slaps, they're going to show on his chest. It's a nice little touch. Uh, he can brawl. He's Like I said, he was in a lot of those hardcore matches in front 2014 air. Uh, could do tag team matches. I think he's really good in uh, like the gimmick, money in the bank. Uh, Elimination Chamber matches where he's a good guy to bump off of and also to uh, hit big moves in those types of matches. He can have longer technical matches, uh, as you can see with his match with Daniel Bryan, but that was with Daniel Bryan, so a lot of guys could fall into that category. But, I mean, he was always a guy that if he's on... He'll give you the SmackDown main event where it'll go 15 minutes. Like he's able to deliver a solid enough match as long as he's in there with a guy. I would say either at his skill level or even a little below. There's some guys he could lift up, especially like you were saying, against another power guy when they're as uh, Biggie would say, big, big beefy man slapping. That's always a great styles and yeah i think he can brawl the big bruising slaps are kind of his forte and he's got pro kick he's got he doesn't really use celtic cross that much anymore he busted out of big time matches Curse Backbreaker, uh, the Texas Cloverleaf, which he uses 
plot as much as that. Uh, yeah, he's pretty, pretty good for, and he doesn't wrestle like a big man. He just wrestles as like, like a powerful guy, but who could also has a deal to move around. He's not a lumbering thing. So, I kind of Yeah, I, you know, Seamus is, he is just a really great worker. I think he, he is one of my favorite you know, guys going right now in the company. So, um, and I think Valentine is also a great worker. I mean, both as kind of a technical mat wrestler, exchanging holds and laying in punches and chops. Uh, he and Garvin just beat the piss out of each other from late 88 until the 90 rumble. And it's just glorious. So, uh, you, you have to, you know, kind of track down a lot of their, house show matches where they're a little longer and you get to really see some of that so valentine um he sells and makes his baby face opponent looks good he he always makes other people look good uh which is you know a lot of the role of a heel at the time he's a really good tag worker and he and beefcake kind of grow into having really good teamwork you know cutting off the baby faces cheating distracting the ref or you know, the babyface false tags. Um, and again, Beefcake improves greatly, but, you know, Valentine's guiding that ship. And, you know, like, it's not rare to have matches like the WrestleMania 2 match that you mentioned where Valentine might work three quarters of the match, too. So, um, and, you know, Valentine and Backlund, they always had solid to great matches. Uh, that 60 minute draw, in 1979 that I mentioned that has, you know, tons of holds and for working body parts and selling limbs. And, you know, it really does a good job of keeping up the action in such a long match. You know, that's, it's not always for everybody and it can be really difficult to, to pull it off, but they kind of do a good job of, of doing things, but they're not flying around all the time, but they're not just laying in a headlock either. So, uh, so I think they do a good job with that um of course the tito feud that had matches that just continued to escalate and valentine and tito did a good job building a match off the previous match so things that had, had happened before if they did a a double count out finish um brawling outside the ring the next match would be a lumberjack match and and so on and so forth as they built that feud um and i just think that you know he's a really versatile worker you know does a lot of just has a lot of of clubs in his bag so and this is where i really really have a hard time making this decision um i've done several of these and i often wind up on the getting you know making a case for someone who's a little bit of an from an older era from that 80s era and it, it's often the case where I'll think that the work rate of the older guy is better, but the matches might be better for a more modern wrestler. For And, for example, Bob Backlund and Roman Reigns and, and Ryan and I came to that conclusion that Backlund had a better work rate. Roman had 
a had a better match resume. I, in this case, Sheamus is one of my favorites. I, I think I would go Valentine by a smidge, but I this is like this would be like choosing between my children if I had more than one. Um, so it's really really difficult. I don't want to say anything against Sheamus. Um, I would go Valentine by a smidge, but Ryan, what what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think because I think the next uh, category I've got quite a few uh, nominations, so I think yeah, I could see you know Valentine getting a slight the slight bump here just because you know it was a different style he had to work back in the eighties. And a little more difficult, I think, to get over. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it, I think that in the more modern era, having great matches became more important to being a great worker, if that makes sense. So in in the past, if you were going up against Hulk Hogan, you are, you're not going out there to have a five-star match. In fact, unless you're a top guy, it, it better not be too damn competitive. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you're you're counting the lights better and you're your counting your money and you're happy. Quickly, <laughs> hit your moves quickly, you know. Have yeah. one good move, one devastating move, and then lay back and let Hogan do his thing. Yeah. Okay, well, and that that does take us to our our next and last category, which is match resume. So tell us about all the great matches Sheamus has had. All right. So with Sheamus, the first one I would want to highlight would be his uh, feud with Goldust right when he came into ECW. And it they had uh, three, no, four matches. And it ended with a no disqualification match on the September 1st ECW show, which Sheamus wins in a pretty good, like, 13, 14-minute match, just back and forth. And it kind of build off, builds off the earlier match. The first couple minutes, they have a lot of different nice, like, reversals and callbacks, and then ends with Sheamus getting the win. And that was kind of the... Uh, Kind of after that, he was put onto Raw, and I would say that his Survivor Series match, where him, The Miz, and Drew McIntyre are the Survivors, is really a really good uh, traditional Survivor Series match, and he gets the final elimination in the match. So it's it's built around him and McIntyre really worked the most of the match. Um, then for his next, like, really noteworthy match, I would say would be Extreme Rules 2011, or 2010, against Triple H, where he has this, a big street fight, beats him, it's kind of made the look dominant. Next, I would say him and uh, John Morris and Good little feud at the end of 2010 into 2011, including a uh, ladder match at TLC, which is pretty good. 
and then uh, he has, let me see where the next Oh, then uh, Money in the Bank 2001, he's in the SmackDown match, and he, this is the one won by Daniel Bryan, but I would say he's like the number two star of the match. He powerbombs and Caro through a ladder and is really just made to look dominant throughout most of the match. And then right after this is where he gets into his feud with Mark Henry, and they have a awesome match at SummerSlam where... Henry tackles him through the barrier and Seamus tries to get up, but just at the at nine he can't get in anymore. He can't continue. But it's really a really great match. I and it's one of those few times where like they have a face valiantly lose, but it helps both characters. It's it's a different style match, which Seamus ends up having quite a few of those. And after that, then the Royal Rumble. I know the 2002 Rumble, a lot of people think of it as like, oh, it's the comedy Rumble. And it, it is. It's got a lot of goofy spots. But from the point Sheamus comes in until the end, it is kind of, I was looking at the listing earlier. It is pretty much, well, I guess right after him is the Road Dog. So that kind of killed my point. But once you get past the Road Dog, it's all like, big time names and the people in the ring with him are all and it was a rumble where like it was Seamus was big going into it Chris Jericho you never know what they're going to do with Randy Orton he might get so you didn't really know who was going to win it wasn't one of those foregone conclusion rumbles and I would say he was actually an upset winning it over Chris Jericho and then uh, the WrestleMania match is it's more of a moment than a match. It's 18 seconds, but then at Extreme Rules is just an awesome two out of three falls match with Daniel Bryan and Sheamus, and it is one of and it's on a card with two other great matches, but this is one of my probably my second favorite Seamus match, I would say, and it's just, it's Daniel Bryan trying to, it's really interesting because it's Daniel Bryan just picking apart this guy that's, you know, 80 pounds bigger than him, probably five inches taller, and it's really Daniel Bryan just working him over to the point where he gets DQ'd by just picking Seamus when he's in the ropes, but then he hooks that in to get a submission victory, so it's really smartly worked and then he has a couple of matches with Roberto Del Rio the Night of Champions one is actually pretty good that is where I think leading up to it the bro kick was not allowed then right before the match Booker T comes out and reinstates it and I guess Booker T was the authority figure at this point it gets a little fuzzy as to who's running what and then yeah. Booker T seems like a very executive level figure. I mean, I could see him being a top-notch executive. So yeah, especially when he decides to get out his Chucky Ducky top five <laughs> of the of the week awards. Um, and then he starts a few with the Big Show, which 
we it's a chairs match at TLC where or no, it was he lost it at Hell in a Cell. Yeah, he lost it at Hell in a Cell to the Big Show, which was it's like I said, you know, I'm not the biggest Big Show fan, but this is one of those weird. Sometimes just guys have weird chemistry that you would not count on it. Like, okay, 40 year old Big Show at this time against Sheamus, who at that point, you know, I had gone over some good matches, but character wise, he was kind of starting to get annoying, kind of be like overbearing. And then these two guys just go out and have an awesome match, which ends with the Big Show winning clean and then. They have a couple of rematches at Survivor Series and finally TLC where it's a chairs match. And then at the at uh, Elimination Chamber 2013 now is his first of a couple of six-man matches with The Shield. At that one, he's with John Cena and uh, Ryback. And then he starts teaming with Randy Orton against the Shield. And at WrestleMania, it's Sheamus, Orton, and the Big Show against the Shield. And, I mean, this is like all early Shield six-man matches that I know you guys were talking about last time where, you know, it's hard to find one that's less than three and a half stars if they're given time. I think those are just all-time, like, six-man series of matches. And then from there, he again gets, he's kind of, he's in the Money in the Bank in 2013, which is won by Randy Orton. Uh, He, in 2014, Royal Rumble, he makes his return. And uh, then he's really good in the Elimination Chamber match the next month. That's really one of the better chamber matches, I think. And he has a really good showing at the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal, where he is one of the last guys eliminated. Uh, he Then the next uh, thing I would point out for him would be where he comes back in 2015. He has a match with Daniel Bryan on early SmackDown. It ends up being one of Daniel Bryan's last matches for would it be three years, I think. This was yeah, about three years, but it was a really good comeback for him. And then he is in he wins Money in the Bank in 2015. And then after he he cashes in and beats Roman Reigns and then his he has a TLC match with Reigns that he helped he wins from League of Nations and that's a pretty good match and then the next night he has a match against uh, Sheamus or against Roman Reigns again and this time he loses and it seems like for a little bit I mean it helped that it was Reigns was feuding with Vince McMahon but Sheamus is helping to get Roman Reigns over as a face in Philadelphia the same Town where 11 months earlier he got booed winning the Rumble. So Sheamus at least takes a little credit for that. 
Yeah, I am glad you mentioned that because I do think that was significant. So he was playing enough of a heel at that time that that the fans chose Roman. Right. Um, you know, whether that he was a little stale or whether he was just that good a heel, you know, who who am I to argue that? He was he was very helpful in doing what the company wanted to get done at that time. So right. put a feather in his cap there. So. And then there, yeah, the, the League of Nations stuff, the less said, the better as far as uh, high-quality matches. But then, like I said, his feud with Cesaro, where they have the best of seven matches, some of them are better than the other. Uh, I like the SummerSlam kickoff show. That was the first match. It might have to do with me being there. But then also uh, the third match is, or the final match is really good. It ends in a no contest, though. So they then decide to form a tag team. And, I mean, these guys at the tag team were just really good. A lot of three, three three-and-a-half-star matches, eventually beating the New Day to win the Raw Tag Belts. And then they, uh, they're at the WrestleMania 33-14 ladder match where the Hardys come back. And then after that, the bar enters into a feud with the Hardys. They have a steel cage match at Extreme Rules. Yes. And then at... Uh, Great Balls of Fire, they have a 30-minute Iron Man match with them. And then, and they kind of win that feud. And then they have a really good series of matches with Rollins and Ambrose at SummerSlam also. And then after that, so this is kind of where the team... Uh, Again, off and on, they'd have good matches with the New Days, the Usos at TLC. Uh, in 2018, they have a really good triple threat match against the Usos and the New Day. Um, and then, like I said, Sheamus, they eventually, the uh, Sheamus gets injured again and the bar kind of splits apart. And then, I would say his next Really good match would be when he comes and feuds with uh, Drew McIntyre in 2021. And then uh, the match with Riddle at WrestleMania was pretty good. It's kind of on the shorter end, but pretty good match. And then this year, Sheamus is in the uh, Money in the Bank. Again, he's really good in those matches. He always has a few big time power spots or moves off the ladder, and then the SmackDown right before uh, SummerSlam this year, he faced Drew McIntyre. In a, this was a good old-fashioned Donnie Brook match. Uh, so I guess he's had a couple of good old-fashioned Donnie Brook matches then. And then at Clash at the Castle, like I said earlier, his match with Gunther, it's just one of the more hard-hitting matches that you'll see in a WWE setting. Both guys are famous as like bleeding from his chest. I think Gunther gets a busted lip, and they are just 
hammer each other the whole match. Yeah, I think I was bleeding watching that match, actually. <laughs> so they were hitting each other so hard. So, yeah. Um, yeah, he, he's just got such an incredible list of, of great matches. Um, all that you said, and just a couple of things that I would echo. I'm, I don't have any additional matches, but that uh, the two out of three falls with Daniel Bryan at Extreme Rules 2012 that one made my gwwe match list the top 100 matches um that big show hell in a cell from 2012 that also was that was a match that i'd kind of heard people talk about um and i think uh i think stacy said it, that's a legit five-star match and i didn't have it five stars but it also made my top 100 like i you don't if someone just tells you, ah, Seamus and Big Show, they've got this all-time classic, you're like, all right, whatever, you know, and then you see it, and you're like, yeah, yeah, it is, so, you know, he had two matches that were on that list the last time we did it, if we were doing it again tomorrow, that match at Clash in the Castle would make my list for sure, you know, we were, we were kind of discussing, is it five stars, or is it four and three quarters, but, uh, we no one was talking about it being less than that, so you know that that easily puts it on that list. And um, and then the stuff you covered with the bar too. That I remember the Hardys match was really good, and uh, the Hardys at that point in their career, not everybody's getting that out of them. So and then and even the Shield at that point, they were floundering a bit. Now when they started tagging or when Rollins and uh, and Ambrose started tagging together I think that that helped them a lot but then you know having great matches at the bar helped them a lot too so so yeah he's got quite a quite the resume um as far as Greg Valentine uh, for his match resume uh, the first one I have is the one that I've already talked about a little bit uh, versus Bob Backlund on February 19th, 1979 from Madison Square Garden on the MSG Network. Uh, I had that match at four and a quarter stars. It made my GWWE match list at number 92. Uh, I, I think I kind of wanted to get a match from the 1970s or earlier on if I could find one and that certainly fit the bill as the best one I could find as uh, it's a Broadway 60 minute draw. So, you know, that I understand that's not for everybody, but it is a great match. And, uh, and like I said, I, I referred to the, the Chad Campbell scale for some validation there. And uh, if anyone love hear your thoughts on if that's the best match of the decade, or if there's others out there, no, also, I, from what I've seen, definitely, I think the best 70s man for sure. Yeah, and that's a bit of a low bar from some of the other stuff I've seen. Um, right, yeah, I mean, it's against, you know, I think High Chief Peter might be against Chief J. Strong, but it's not exactly a five-star. It's pretty, it's really. Yeah. Yeah. When we did the tag team list, I watched a lot of 70s and oh my God. <laughs> I'm not getting Are that Mr. time Boogie back. And Uru Tanaka? 
Yeah. Those and oh, the, well, the Strongbows, they were a tag team for a lot of the time. And they had jewels, right? <laughs> yeah, jewels. I think he might have, he might even been worse. Ugh. Oh. I don't know why we're talking about that. <laughs> um, but the next match I had was uh, also a was a tag team match better than the Strongbows. It was the Dream Team against Tito Santana and Ricky Steamboat. And I've talked about this match a couple different times during either this podcast or just in general. I'm I'm kind of a big proponent of it. I had that one at four and a quarter as well. The date on that is 42185. Um and Valentine had another one against Backland at Madison Square Garden, November 23rd, 1981. I would put it four and a quarter. And he had another match, or had a match against Tito Santana, uh, November 26, 1984. Um, that I have that one at four and a quarter as well. Um, he had a four-star match against Tito on January 20. 20- first 1985 or i had it at four stars and i think those two kind of stand out from the the tito's series the two that i just talked about the one where he wins it is that where's that like available i'm trying i think that might be the that might be the november 84 one that i was talking about okay i think i should I'll uh, I'll double check that as after I run down the the matches, see if I can find that. Um, so then he had another match against Backland, uh, a cage steel cage match at Madison Square Garden. Uh, the date of that one was January sixteenth, nineteen eighty two, and I think that's a four star. Um, and I went four stars for the Royal Rumble match, a uh, Royal Rumble 1990 match uh, against Ron Garvin. And the Dream Team and Islanders had a match at the Boston Gardens on 12-6-86 that I thought was a four-star match. Uh, he had another great match against Ronnie Garvin. Um, it was in Boston on January 13th, 1989. So I had that at three and three quarters, so 3.75. The Dream Team faced the Can-Am Connection at, at uh, Madison Square Garden January 19th of 1987 at three and three quarters. This next one is a, was a bit of a hidden gem and kind of a, a pleasant surprise to me. Um, Valentine faced off against Davy Boy Smith at Madison Square Garden. So kind of part of the Dream Team and British Bulldogs feud. Uh, and that was 10-20-86. And I thought that was a three and three quarters match as well. Um, and the, the uh, British Bulldogs, really a lot of Valentine's matches, these are kind of, I tried to pick representations. He's got a lot of good matches against Tito, a lot of good matches against Backlund, and they have a, the Dream Team has a lot of good matches against the Bulldogs. Uh, 
they had a really good match against the U.S. Express as well. The Dream Team did. Uh, that was on 8-10-1985. So I had that one at 3.75. Uh, that's not where they won the titles. That was uh, before that, I believe. I had the WrestleMania 2 match against the British Bulldogs. I had that at 3.5. And... and um, I had another Ronnie Garvin match at Madison Square Garden from 12-30-1988 at 3.5. And another Bob Backlund Madison Square Garden match from 10-19-81 at 3.5. And I just thought I would mention the Hulk Hogan Madison Square Garden July 23rd. 1984 match and i had that one at three stars it's not as good and and there are other matches that would you know have higher star ratings but just the fact that he was a fairly early challenger to hulk hogan you know how she'll leave it was kind of something i wanted to to throw out there yeah yeah so i do think that this is one that that sheamus is going to win this one yeah, I think this, I mean, this one is kind of where you just kind of count the number of matches, and I think Sheamus just gets it just more so because of opportunity, but he has more high-end matches. I do have to say, after listening to you and Ryan last month, I went and watched the, the Valentine Backlund match where it's it's like one of the stupidest endings I've ever seen, where Pete the rough gives the belt to Valentine. It, it is. It's preposterous. And <laughs> it, it's worth watching because you're like, how, it, if I, when I talk about it or when I read about it, I'm like, how in the hell do they make that look remotely realistic? And the answer is they don't really. I mean, that, no. like, do the, uh, you know, like the German soup, the back suplex where both guys are shoulders are down or something, but like, yeah, the rock just comes over and hits the belt to so the guy who was clearly pinned. It wasn't like it was a roll-up or anything. It was just... No, no, it, it was absolutely obvious that he was pinned. And, and I guess one of the reasons he the ref hands Valentine the belt is Valentine is celebrating like he won. And it like yeah. you said, it was not a double pin in any form or fashion i mean backland is on top of him (laughs) not with his shoulders down he's you know his shoulders aren't down at all so it's just yeah it's preposterous and the the fact that they play it as well i mean ref handed in the belt obviously it's official there's nothing we can do there i mean yeah by that logic the next time they had a match after the match the rush Valentine just should have run up and grabbed the belt from the referee right away, and I guess he wins. Right, right. Which you know, heels have been doing that for how long? Stealing yeah, belts. That's cool, right? Yeah. Well. All right, Ryan. Well, if we tally up all these, uh, tally up the score here. I had Sheamus as having an advantage in one, two, three, 
four, five, six. Had Valentine having an advantage in one, and I had three of them as equal, or we would split the vote. And I think that sounds about right, because I will confess um, that as I was preparing for this and I got to thinking through the categories, I was I was hard pressed to find one that I thought Valentine won convincingly. Um, but I did find feel like they would be close. And I've I've alluded to that before. Um, so even as I was preparing to make the case, I had a hard time finding categories that I thought Valentine would win convincingly. But I hope that I was able to make Valentine's case just as a contender in general, because I think I will be probably higher than the consensus on Valentine. And I I would say the same will probably be the case for Seamus. So I you know I think I'll have them quite close to each other. I right now I have them back to back. That may wind up ultimately being the case. Uh, as you had them back to back last time. So yeah, I think I mean both of them should definitely I think Valentine's one of the guys that last time around, I remember getting like a lot of pipe for, like hearing a lot of pipe, and I think him and Tito, a lot of people were appreciating those that feud and wanted it to be looked at. So I hope people, you know, remember that hype for him. And then just Seamus, I mean, I think he's making a really, you know, a really big push here at the end. You know, if you had told me, Six months ago, Seamus is going to be one of the, you know, top five guys you'll want to watch on shows. I'd be like, really? Him, like, running around in his newsboy hit with Ridge Howland? But he's really turned it up since, uh, I would say, the change in management has helped him a lot. And it's kind of a shame they're not doing, like, Roman Reigns is a more semi-active guy because... That would be really interesting, I think, like as a one-off pay-per-view fight, but I don't see know if Sheamus is going to get that big of a renewed push here. Oh, absolutely. It signed me up for that. So um, just, you know, um, Sheamus's former partner, Cesaro, had kind of that one-off match with right. Reigns, and it was great. And, like, just, just do the same sort of thing somehow. I mean, I would. That would be great. Well, um, Brian, I think we've done a good job making the case for both guys. Um, is there, that's a good time as it always is. Um, do you have anything else? Do you have anything that uh, that you'd like to plug? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm the place to be nation wrestling feed. Uh, me and my wife, Cindy, do With This Ring, where we are also looking at other uh, candidates' uh, credentials for the GWWE list right now. And we recently did Kurt Angle, and right now we're doing our research for uh, John Cena. So we're, we're looking at, you know, real borderline fringe case guys there. Hopefully they're able to sneak on the list. Right, that was what was that last guy you said? Uh, Senna? Yeah, yeah, okay. Wait, no, the prototype actually. That's what he's more known. Oh, for. that yes, the prototype. Yeah, I had him at 98 last time, so yeah, 
All right. Well, it, like I said, it was a good time as always. I think it was a great comparison. Um, so thank you, Place, thank, Place to Be Nation, North-South Connection, Quad of Pods. Uh, we will continue our journey uh, making the case for different wrestlers for the GWWE. You can also participate in the discussion on the Facebook page. Uh, and uh, just start making your lists because we're approaching the end of the year when we will do the voting. Thank you, North South Connection. Yep, thanks. <laughs>